0: you're listening to a message from spindle city vineyard connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com how are we today good doing all right welcome back lauren the skiing's not quite as intense here but we're glad you're home uh, my name is Brittany, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the Vineyard, and it's good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue in the series that Susanna launched us into last week. Um, so if you're joining us online, we're so glad you're here. If you're in person, it's nice to see your smiling face. And if you haven't filled out one of those Connect cards, either you know the little one that's in the seat in front of you or the digital version using the QR code, we would love for you to do that. It just helps us to know how to walk with you, right? Can't say hi to someone if you've never met them. Um, so we're going we're gonna to start with a quiz this morning. I'll see how well you know bridges around the world. So we'll pop up that first slide, Jacobo. There are five bridges. And let's see if you know which ones they are. Um, starting on the upper left-hand corner, what bridge is that? Golden Gate, Golden Gate. Where is it? In England. England. Yes, Dan, it's in England. Uh, San Francisco. San Francisco. <laughs> Um, the one down below it, bottom left, bottom left. Tower Bridge. Tower Bridge. Tower Bridge. Where's that one, Dan? Ireland. 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 Yeah, yeah, definitely there. Uh, the one on the top right. Sydney Harbor. Who got that? Nice. Oh, Jonathan, you did live there. <laughs> Cheater! Um, <laughs> bottom right. It's In... No, no, it's in Japan, but you're close. You know, I can't honestly, I'm gonna need to, I have a page on the next one, it's, it's the K. And the one in the middle, it's in the Middle East. You can pop up the answers on the next one. It's a bridge of 33 arches. Akashi Kaikyo. My Japanese is not super great. Yeah, five bridges. Um, bridges are a structure used to span an obstacle. It Could be a river, or waterway. It could be another road system. It could be a canyon. Um, the reality is, I'm gonna just say with 100% certainty this morning, and if you somehow prove me wrong, then I have so many questions for you. Um, humans can't fly by themselves, right? You need something, like you can't just go and jump off up at the falls and, and take off just with your own self. Um, you're not immortal, last time I checked. You probably don't have the capacity to scale a sheer rock face without some type of equipment or gear. If you've watched, what is it, Free Solo, with the guy climbing El Capitan, bless, that's like the only person in the world who's done it and not died. So. I don't think we're him. And I don't think any of us, including myself, have the desire to swim or row across any of the waterways in the capital region on a regular basis to get where we need to go. You know, I can't imagine having to haul my kids and like head down to the Mohawk with a canoe and throw them in to get across the other side to get them to school. Um, Bridges help us overcome our natural limits as human beings, right? They help us navigate obstacles that we could never cross on our own without significant help or gear or, frankly, just inconvenience. So they help us to get where we need to go. And here at the Vineyard, we are in the middle of this journey where we're going through the whole Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, so much fun. And it's not uncommon, we did this quiz two weeks ago, for us to prefer reading the New Testament. It's easier, shorter storyline, Huge uh, continuity between characters and people, or people, places, and and even what they're about and and what they're doing. The Old Testament is massive, as Judah would say. Super old. You're going over eons of time, really, if you're thinking about creation to to now. You're looking at all parts, you know, different parts of the world, different languages, different political structures and social structures, it's just harder to wrap your brain around. Um, And for that reason, a lot of folks have a hard time enjoying reading both and almost kind of divide themselves or have this disconnect from the Old Testament, right? Sometimes I've heard people say, God's scary in the Old Testament. I don't really like him there. Like the image is kind of weird. It gives me weird vibes. But Jesus is great. So I'm going to hang out and live in the New Testament. And the trouble with that is it's hard for us to actually have a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit if we divide the very book that they have interwoven. And the key to then connecting the two halves is Jesus. He is the bridge that spans what can feel like an impossible divide between the hard or scary or, or difficult to understand Old Testament and the beautiful, hopeful, loving New Testament that we often, that's how we characterize it. And so the gospels, which are Jesus's story, it's all about Jesus, are the bridge that helps us to go between the old and the new. In fact, it ties those two stories together into one whole and complete book. And so what we have to do is begin to catch the way that the gospel writers give us hints of how Jesus brings the old and the new together. And one of the primary tools they use, which Susanna introduced last week, is allusions, It's this expression designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly. I'm going to use a political one this morning, and you're all going to have a reaction. And whatever your reaction is, it's not about the thing or the person. It's just that you instantly will make a connection to it if I say, make America great again. You all have a reaction, right? Because you knew exactly what I was referring to without me ever having to say the name. And that's what an illusion does. It helps you to immediately connect back to something or just to connect to something without having to go in all this explicit detail and a ton of backstory, right? I can just say four words and you've got the whole backstory because you just recollect. And so the Gospels are full of these moments where the writers put all these illusions in that we as Western readers typically miss. But if we can train our eyes to begin to catch them, it helps us feel a uniformity, a connectedness with the Old Testament in such a way that it actually helps us to understand God better. And when we can trust him, when we feel like we know him better, we can begin to go deeper in a relationship with him, which is what he wants more than anything. He wants a friendship with us, right? So we're going to do, I love what Susanna had created last week, so I just took it, uh, and we're going to keep that slide, I think, because it's so perfect. But we're looking to find where the storyteller, and if it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, has Jesus doing something or being someone that the Old Testament has already introduced. So we're going to do that this morning in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, when we talk about the temptation of Jesus. I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. Holy Spirit, you promise that your word goes forward and it changes us, and so I just ask this morning you'd be faithful to that promise, and you would help us to hear and catch and know you better through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd love for you to follow along. It's 11 verses, so I did not onto the slide because more than anything as I'm reading, I want you to answer this question in your mind, and then we'll do it as a group when I'm done. What events or people in the Old Testament does this story remind you of? Okay, Matthew four, verses one to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Make sense? And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. In a minute, we're going to answer this question. What people or events in the Old Testament does this story remind you of? Hopefully the cues of like wilderness and 40 days and testing brought some things to mind. But before we answer, I want to explain very quickly the Greek verb that is used in this, in this um, section of text because it's very important that we understand it. In verse 1, it says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil how many of you think temptation is typically a good thing? You're like tempted. No no one. I was tempted to eat a salad today, Brittany. I was tempted to go to bed at nine o'clock last night and get a full eight hours of sleep, right? Temptation is almost always in the negative when we think about it. Um, And so for that reason, it's really tricky for us to understand what's going on in this text. And it's not a great translation. Um, The Greek word is parazo. It's a verb here. And it implies not that negative connotation of temptation. What it really implies is the experience of undergoing a set of difficult circumstances that are meant to reveal the truth of who you are. Um, In our context, a better word would be test. In our education system, we usually test people in theory for uh, comprehension, right? We use tests to ascertain, have you learned all of the material that I've been teaching you, at least in theory? Um, Here, the idea is that somebody is undergoing something challenging, difficult, something that stirs up and brings out the truth of who they really are. That's what Jesus is going through here. And so I would even encourage you, if you're somebody who likes to write in your Bible, or you have a digital one, is to put the word test over the word tempt, because it will help us to understand what it is that Jesus is actually experiencing. It's not just these temptations to do these bad things, it's a moment of revelation to see if Jesus is gonna be loyal to who God says he is and what God has specifically called him to do. And so, with that in mind, what people or events in the Old Testament does this story remind you of? Moses, yeah? 40 years, yep. The wilderness with Israel, what else? Joseph? The bread from heaven, yes, the manna. Very good. If you put the word, well, using, using the word tempt or test, who else was tempted or tested in the Bible in the Old Testament? Job? Eve? Abraham? Okay, let's just be honest. A lot of people were. <laughs> I was looking for Adam and Eve. Thank you, Kendra Lynn. Yeah. Any other bridges or any other illusions that you're sensing as we read this text. David, yeah, absolutely. I hadn't even thought of that one. That's solid. Yep. Yeah, David went through a lot of this Parazo, Joseph, yep, somebody else said Joseph too. Yeah. There's a lot of thematic, testing, tempting, difficult circumstances to reveal the truth of who we are in the Bible, enough, since it starts with Adam and Eve and carries all the way through to this moment with Jesus, for us to basically say that this is something every human being is going to experience. This is a normal part of being a human. Not necessarily that, that we're tempting, but it's this idea of being tested, of undergoing difficult circumstances that will reveal who we really are on the inside. Not who we pretend to be or who we say to be, but When you're under the gun, you tend to show your true colors. And that's exactly what this verb is implying here. I'm going to just grab two this morning. I'm going to use Adam and Eve, and I'm going to use Israel in the wilderness, which includes Moses. When Israel goes into the wilderness for their 40-year trek, um, it was absolutely a test of loyalty. God says, hey, I just saved you from slavery, and I'm going to see if you actually believe the things that I'm saying to you. I'm going to test it out to see if you're actually going to be loyal to me as my people or if you're going to bomb, and they did. So an entire generation dies in the wilderness because they didn't trust him. Adam and Eve lived in paradise. They had everything. Life was very simple for them, and the one request was an act of simple obedience. Just don't eat that. And anyone who's ever had toddlers in their life is like... You should have said, just eat it, because then they won't want to eat it, God. If you tell them don't do it, they're absolutely gonna do it, and they absolutely did. And as a result, all of humanity has experienced the pain and suffering from that moment. And so this passage echoes back to so many places. I mean, we've got that image that Perla and Susanna both um, will be using, and Imani, where this one moment with Jesus has implications that have we've read about it over and over and over again. And that's important for us because Jesus is about to respond differently than any other human being ever has. And that's what's so significant about this moment of testing. So what happened 40 days before this all goes down in Jesus' life? Sorry, this is going to be a really big question. John what, Terry? Yeah, John baptized Jesus. Yeah, we just read about that with Susanna last week. Baptism's usually a pretty significant moment for someone, right? They've made the decision to follow Jesus, and so they are going public. That's what baptism is. It's this public declaration of a private moment. I've given my life to Jesus, or it's kind of like changing your citizenship at that moment when you go and you take the vow to become a citizen of the new country. That's what baptism is. It's that public declaration, like, I've chosen to make Jesus my king. I am his citizen now. And so he's coming off of this super profound spiritual moment because at Jesus' baptism, God speaks out loud, which is kind of a big deal. He says, this is my beloved son. Good, good recollection from last week, guys. And so Jesus' baptism isn't just a moment of surrender. It's actually also a moment of commissioning where Jesus is called by God, my son, And what he's about to do is then embark on the specific role that the Son of God has come to do, which is redeem or save the entire world. And so when God declares Jesus' identity in this moment of his baptism, it changes the course of Jesus' life. He's a normal dude up until this point. He's a carpenter. He has a family. He has a boring week just like you and I. There's nothing miraculous about him other than his birth, which is shrouded with a lot of judgment, if we're being honest, because people just think mom and dad got busy before they got married. And so for Jesus, his baptism moment is really profound because it launches him into the ministry that God has called him to. It's the changing course. And just like the rest of us, when God says something profound to us, it's really cool and also really scary at times. And so we tend to wrestle. God, did you just say that to me? What are all the implications of me saying yes to you? I'm going to have to give up that job. I'm going to have to move? You're asking me to empty my bank account for that? I can't talk to that person anymore? It's normal for us to wrestle when God speaks, and we think that that's weakness or something. But Jesus has this same moment. He goes like Moses, I don't remember who said Moses, he goes like Moses into the wilderness. Moses went into the wilderness with Israel and spent 40 days praying on the mountain for them. Jesus gets launched into this new job. He gets a new job. And essentially, we're led to believe he goes to prayer, or intercede for 40 days for Israel to get ready for the work that's about to happen. And what we're watching in this testing moment is deeply human. We're watching Jesus wrestle with the cost of what God has called him to. You ever think about that? Jesus wrestles. We see it in other parts of scripture, but we often just, well, he's like God and human, it's fine. Like, no, guys, Jesus knows what it's like to wonder about the cost of this, to think about it, and to come to grips with the reality of what God is calling him to do. And that moment, I wouldn't even call it a moment of weakness, just a moment of humanity is when the tester comes in. And Satan is not a proper name. Everyone's Bible capitalizes it like it is. Satan is, uh, essentially means accuser or opponent, um, and you'll find that in, it's tucked throughout the book and sometimes it's personified in a way where it sounds like it's a human, mm-hmm. but in, the, in Genesis it's a snake. And the idea is not that evil is like this literal, singular human being, but that it's a form, a mysterious reality that has moved throughout the creation of the universe. The Bible is not entirely clear about where it came from and its origin story. People have tried to piece text together and not particularly well. Um, and the Bible doesn't really care that we know where it came from, just like suffering. What the Bible wants us to know is what God's doing about evil what God's doing about this mysterious force that hates life, that hates what is good, that hates humans made in God's image and is actively working to get us to doubt who we are and our purpose and God's goodness, anything it can do to lead us towards death. And that is exactly what it is trying to do here. We're gonna go through the three questions because they matter, they're really specific. The first is, if you, Jesus, are the son of God, command these stones, to become loaves of bread. Parazo, a set of difficult circumstances that reveal the truth of who you really are. What is evil testing Jesus with in this question? What is it trying to get him to doubt? Identity, I think I heard a few people say it, yes. Trying to get him to doubt The identity that God has just declared over him 40 days ago at his baptism. If you are the son of God, and it's like, well, wait a minute, didn't he just say I am his beloved son? But that's the first thing that evil goes after, and it's the same for us. I won't say it like every single time, but I would venture nine times out of ten, the first thing that's going to come into your mind, the first whisper when things get hard, is going to be about your identity. Evil's first play is almost always a question. Look at Genesis chapter 3, when, God, when, the, um, when the snake goes to Eve. Did God really say? Hmm. Did he really mean that? Are you actually? Did that really happen? Is your healing genuine? Did you really get freedom? Are you really saved? The enemy loves to create doubt. He loves to take what is true and cast all sorts of confusion around it. Jesus, why are you going hungry in the desert if you're God's kid? Just tell these stones to become bread. Why are you suffering if you're God's? Shouldn't life be simple? Evil tries to take what is true about ourselves, about God, about reality and create room for doubt, and it often does it by pointing out our circumstances. The places where you're struggling the most, well, if you're really God's kid, what's going on with that? Because if he can get you to doubt, he can pull you away from God. We need to understand this, doubt is not evil. Just like any of the other random thoughts that pop into your mind, on any given day. And I know that they're not all pure and holy. That's why there's passages in Philippians. Doubt's no different than any of those. It's gonna happen, it's gonna come into your mind. It's what we do with it that allows it to either become irrelevant or actually something that we would call sin. If we embrace those doubts as true and we make them our new reality and we turn away from what God has said is true, that's when it becomes sin. What Jesus does is responds with the word of Moses instead of embracing what the enemy is saying to him in this moment. He recalls Deuteronomy 8, verses two to three. Remember how the Lord God, your God, led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, listen to this part, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna the food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone or bread only. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And what Jesus is saying back to evil through this verse is that my circumstances do not define my identity as God's kid. If I'm struggling or I'm on the mountaintop, Those don't tell me whether or not I'm, like, valued by God. I am valued by God simply because he says so, and that is my reality. My worth, my flourishing, my survival is not just with bread and water and shelter and clothing. I live, I truly live as a human being because of what God has said about me. That is where my whole sense of self comes from. And that's not worth a little bit of bread, right? You can destroy my body. My soul is what matters the most. And so the enemy's like, fine, we'll try it again. And he says this time, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is evil challenging Jesus with in this question? not a trick question, guys. Identity. Woo-hoo! Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, it's the same question again, but I feel like a little bit like evil plays like AI, where it's like, oh, uh, 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 Jesus just used the Bible, so I'm going to use the Bible back, uh, because that's what he does. He's like, well, if you can use the word, so can I. And he takes Psalm 91, which is a poem known to talk about God's trust and his love and his faithfulness to us, and it twists it. Just a little bit. It says, if God really loves you, Jesus, if you're really his son, he'll prove it to you by protecting you from doing something pretty stupid, just just jumping off a building, right? Like, okay, if God is good, Jesus, and you're his kid, he's not going to let bad things happen to you. He's not gonna let something disrupt your life. That wouldn't be good, right? That wouldn't be loving, that wouldn't be kind. If God was good, he wouldn't let you suffer. And this same mindset is what trips Israel up in the desert, right? They get broke, broken out of Egypt, they're coming into freedom, God's providing for them left and right, but it's never enough for them. It's like they're so scared that they want God to prove more and more and more and more that he is actually good or is actually going to take care of them. And so Jesus responds and says from Deuteronomy 6, again, the words of Moses, you shall not put, your Lord, put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Jesus is saying, God is not in my service. That's not how this relationship works. I trust him because he's good and I humble myself to his goodness I don't need to test him to find out if he loves me. Evil switches its tactic. We're gonna move to question three. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. He realizes it can't disrupt Jesus's identity. Like, he's solid and secure, he's the son of God, and evil's like, fine, all right. So now, what does he go after? He's going after loyalty, that's good, Jonathan. That's definitely the underlying thing. There's something really specific in this question Yes, his calling, his identity as the king. Evil's saying, we know you're the king of kings. We know you've come to do this. He's trying to get Jesus to wrestle with the how. How will you become king, Jesus? Do you want to struggle and suffer? Are you sure you want to die? I can give this to you right now. Evil makes a really bold offer, which should remind us of something. Evil is saying that it has major influence over how this world operates. There is no political system, no government chosen by God, right? Evil has infiltrated everything. And it is trying to say, Jesus, you are going to be king, but you don't want to have to give up everything. Just worship me and I'll give it all to you. Because evil tries to disrupt our vocation, our calling, our destiny, by giving us cheap easy alternatives oh you want to be healthy well you know the path but like just do this instead or oh you're you're lonely and you know you should wait till you're married to have sex but like what's one or two times it's not really like that big of a deal or you know you're trying to stay sober but like your friends are all going to the bar like what's one time going with them you're going to be fine the enemy doesn't want you to be healthy and whole and complete ever And he will constantly whisper in your ear little subtle things that say, hey, it's hard. Life's hard following God. Just take a break. Kick back. Maybe he doesn't even love you that much. Are you sure you're the son? The daughter? He loves to whisper in our ears. But this is the moment that the battle is over. And I promise, Dan and Imani, I will do this in four minutes. I promise, I see. Jesus responds again with the words of Moses from Deuteronomy 6. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. When you take an oath, you must use only his name. Tell me again, what is the purpose of perazzo or testing in the Bible? Reveal identity, yeah. Reveal the truth of who you are. Do you believe? What God says about you, do you believe what he has called you to do? Jonathan said before, loyalty. Are you loyal to God? That's what testing is all about. It's discerning our loyalty. Is it more to me or is it more to King Jesus? And in this moment, Jesus is the first human who actually succeeds at being a human by staying loyal to God and honoring his God-given identity and his God-given vocation. Since Genesis, we've been waiting for this moment. Every human being is like, yeah, no. Yeah, meh. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Jesus is the first person who point blank looks down the line and says, I yield myself entirely to the king. And because of this, let's go back to that word from Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, or in in Jesus' case, 40 days, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Jesus in this moment is worthy of his calling as king. This is the moment where then he is going to go out and start doing miracles. He's going to go start calling disciples. He's going to start teaching with authority. He has shown himself worthy by showing himself humble to, the, to God. He has proven his loyalty to the king of kings and said, it's your way, not mine. And this is what drives evil away. Catch that. Trusting God is what drives evil away. You know what's interesting about this story? No one else was there. How did it end up in the Gospels? Jesus clearly had to have reiterated it to his friends. And it was significant enough that three of the four of them were like, I think I'm going to write that story down. That was really good, Jesus. And I think it's because Jesus knew something that we prefer not to talk about. The same voices that attacked him will attack you. The same voices that whispered in Jesus' ear are absolutely going to whisper in your ears and my ears. How many of you have had a powerful moment with God and shortly after you felt like your life was unraveling? It could have even been getting here this morning. (laughs) After your baptism, after a significant moment of surrender, the moment you gave your life to Jesus, you go home and all of a sudden, it's like World War III. It could have been after a major breakthrough. There is something about us defining our loyalty that the enemy immediately comes in and says, are you sure you want to do that? Did I do? Okay, I'm sorry. Carrying on. We are all going to be tested, and we're all going to either pass or fail. There is no in-between. You can't get a C. It's either an A or an F. Because you're either loyal to God or you're not, right? It's not like there's an in-between space. And so the question then is, do you know what to do or say when those voices come into your mind? This is the last bit. I want to be really careful that we learn. I think this is a, people have talked about this part of this message or this text a ton. Like, just repeat the word of God. Yeah. Just repeat the word of God. We like to get into our humanity and have this battle when these whispers come in where we're like defining it or talking back from our own sense of what's right. Well, yeah, I think I am the, I am the kid of God. Jesus doesn't have a human-to-spirit conversation with evil. It's a spirit-to-spirit spirit conversation with evil because the only thing he says back to him is the word of God. He says, I can't... I can't be bothered to try and go toe-to-toe with you. I recognize your authority in this world. I don't honor it, but I recognize that you have power. The only power that overcomes you is God's, and so that's where I put my anchor. That's where I put my flag. We need to understand that when those whispers, am I really God's kid? He really asked me to do that? The only thing we should say back to him is the word. And then leave it. You don't have to have a conversation with evil. We leave it. This is Discipleship 101. This is how we survive as followers of Jesus because we will be tested. We will have things whisper in our ears all the time. If you'd like to stand up, we're going to move into ministry time now. And we're going to do something a little, a scooch different. Usually we'll, um, we're going to, we'll wait on the Holy Spirit because that's, this is his, and and that's important, but instead of just um, kind of offering a couple things to pray this morning, we're going to do something really simple, and we're just going to confirm who we are in Christ. And so I encourage you to do this, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And if you don't want to do it, that's totally fine. You can sit back and relax and have a lovely next couple of minutes as we rest. But Holy Spirit, we are in awe of your power and your grace. And there is something that makes us feel so vulnerable when we're tested because our circumstances are hard and we feel weak and broken, and sometimes we feel abandoned by you. And it bottoms out our faith at times, and we're like, Where are you, God? And the reminder is that you are so present in those moments, calling us to stay loyal, calling us to stay faithful. calling us to confirm our citizenship in heaven and not on earth.